I think that most things are figure outable and most people can do more than they think that they can do. So I do push people out of their comfort zone. For some people that works really well and they've really thanked me for it. For others, it's you never know when it's too much. But I try to create the environment and I try to push people and I give them a lot of leeway. And I think as long as I trust that you're smart and you're well-intentioned and you understand the objectives and you have a, a kind of a structured approach to how you're doing things and it's mostly working, I'm really happy to empower people who don't want to micromanage um, at all. And I try not to fuss about the small thing. There's some analogy somebody gave me one time, like like one of these puzzles, like you had to, if you had to put like a bunch of rocks into a jar and they were of varying sizes, how would you approach it? And it's, you have to put the big rocks in first. Welcome to Anatomy of a Leader podcast with me, Maria Vorostovsky. I'm the founder and CEO of HVO Search. Founders, CEOs and lone HR directors hire me when they feel stuck and under pressure to hire the right senior leaders who will transform their companies. I'm on a mission to discover what makes a great leader, the skills they have and what really drives them to dissect what success looks like and what it takes to get to the very top. My aim is to bring to you leadership stories of entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs, investors, authors, leaders from all walks of life the failures they faced, what they wish they knew before they started, and the hurdles they had to overcome. If you want to be inspired, surprised, and feel like you're not alone in your struggles towards the very top, you're in the right place here on Anatomy of a Leader. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe to make sure you don't miss a single episode. It will challenge the way you think and may even change your life. Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We haven't spoken, yeah. but uh, real pleasure to to have you here in thank the you studio. For me. So Vanessa, you are the co-founder of the Restory, mm-hmm. which I think is such a fascinating business and so needed in in the world. What inspired you to start that, and how did that come about? The seed of the idea started when I moved to London from New York. I was a financial analyst in New York and at an investment bank, desperate to get out of banking. And my big ambition at the time was to be a management consultant. So I landed my interview at Accenture, and I was getting ready to go to my interview, and I had my power suit and this pair of boots that were like, you know, nothing special, but they, they, they went with this suit and they were, to me, they were great. And they made me feel like a boss. And that was how I would go to interviews. So I took them to the local cobbler to get them just cleaned up before my interview. And the guy, long story short, the guy unapologetically destroyed them. And then when I was complaining about it, he licked his teeth and was saying that he didn't do what I was clear, was obvious that he had done. And then I kind of threw in a last comment and they can, and they're not even cleaned because in New York, you would never get a pair of shoes back that weren't also polished if you had sent them in for a repair. And he told me it wasn't profitable for him. So coming from New York, my jaw just like absolutely hit the floor. And so that was the, the spark, I suppose. So I got another pair of shoes and I went and I nailed my interview and I spent the next eight years at Accenture. But it was that seed of an idea. Then every subsequent experience to that became like a building block on that idea. Mm-hmm. I would take husband's custom suits to the dry cleaner and I didn't think that I needed to explain to somebody that this is a nice fabric and don't put it in that hot presser and they just would and it'd come back all shiny and mm-hmm. get in a big fight about it. Or I would have to find a specialist and then you had to test them with a few things and give them something a little harder each time just to make sure you could 
could even trust them. And they were usually really far away with the really inconvenient hours and the green paper tickets and blah, blah, blah. And meanwhile, the whole world's moving on the phone. And I just felt like such a faff. Like, why is this like this? And then from a business perspective, I'd be like, why does all this effort go into getting me to go into Harvey Nichols and have this amazing and feel good about spending 700 pounds on shoes? I know the minute I walk out the door, something is going to happen to them. But that relationship is over the minute you walk out the door. In contrast, if you buy a nice watch or you buy a car or you, some other luxury products, it, it's a high consideration, low frequency purchase. And they'll fall over themselves trying to keep you engaged so that the next time you're in the market for that sort of a product that they're top of mind. And so I just felt from a consumer perspective, I was frustrated. I felt it was really inconvenient, really inconsistent, untrustworthy. And when I looked at it as a, as a business person, I thought this doesn't feel like it makes sense. No, it definitely doesn't. And I wonder if part of it is to do with sort of fashion industries idea that you only wear them for the season. And next season, yeah. there's going to be something else. So why even worry about repairing it or, or doing something with it? Yeah. I mean, I had a similar experience of taking a pair of shoes, which were also destroyed. And I'm like, surely there must be better ways. So yeah. now there are. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. Mm. The frequency of the kind of frequency of styles and turning out collections and things like that definitely play a role in it. But also the way that we've moved the supply chains, there's a cost to cheap. And I think we've all kind of known at least in the back of our minds, that there's been a human cost to that. Over the last kind of decade, we've started to learn more and more. There's also an environmental cost to this. And now I think through COVID has just become front and center in a way that we can't ignore and we can't sweep under the rug mm. um, anymore. And we're all having a reckoning with that. And, you know. Definitely. And also looking at the four walls and probably wardrobes and thinking what are all these things doing here yeah and what's important to me and, and what's important what do I, I want to keep to it and like mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah I think we're all faced with all of these sort of existential questions which yeah. also translates into the kind of material things that we want to possess or how we want to treat those mm -hmm. ourselves and the external world. It started as a personal itch and a, and a convenience that I wanted, something I wanted to see in the world that I could use. But then sustainability became bigger and bigger. And that, of course, put wind in the sails. And now I think that telling this story almost feels a little bit quaint because that feels like a very small part of it. Now it's so much bigger than all of that. So there's the swell of consumer course, but now there's also the regulations, particularly in Europe, calling for disclosure of repairability, extended producer responsibility, um, right to repair. And then there's $53 trillion worth of ESG seeking capital for compliant opportunities. It, it just feels like the forces behind this are enormous. And talking about having been frustrated with something that's not working and then seeing there must be a, a better way of doing that and then actually putting that into action. Talk to me about that. So when I started this, like I said, I, I cooked this idea in my head for a long time, but I really loved being at Accenture. That was a fantastic job for me. Consulting is a great environment for people who are curious and like to change their focus now and then and really like a challenge. So I was super happy at Accenture. I did have this idea of burning a hole in my pocket. My husband and I did had made some angel investments and we're both business people. My husband's an economist. So we... But I kind of knew that 
me coming from this corporate background, I had a little bit of an entrepreneurial experience very early in my career. And my husband coming from, from the hedge fund world, there, there was some on the ground knowledge that we weren't, that we didn't have. Mm-hmm. And it, I reached a point in my career, particularly with my second child, I was like, I know that and this isn't a dig against Accenture, it just happens. There is a point where your career is going to, They, I wouldn't have been fired or anything, but it would have stalled out for a couple of years yeah. just because you can't focus on everything at once. So I felt like I was going to be in a bit of a placeholder position for the next couple of years. We had made these investments. I had this idea. I felt like there was some missing knowledge and I felt I'll just do this as a bit of a mommy hustle Mm. (laughs) and I'll get some rookie mistakes out of the way. And the way I had envisioned my post-Accenture career was that that I will have this hopefully illustrious kind of business career and I would transform myself into uh, an angel investor and uh, an investor and and an entrepreneur of sorts. so I, so I really started it as a mommy hustle in a way to get some rookie mistakes out of the way, but yeah, I should have known myself better. I mean, <laughs> I'm a bit of a masochist and I'm competitive and I'm driven. And I, as soon as I had it, I, I had an idea that I was not going to, I should have known I wasn't going to let go of it. And, and, mm, and I was going to just do it like halfway. No, you have I to go can't. all in. Mm. <laughs> no, I absolutely can't. And I, and I know myself. I mean, I was like that. I was like that in every step of my career. It's once mm. I'm, I'm I, I commit myself, I'm really all in, and and I'm as I said, a bit of a masochist about it. <laughs> and what has been the biggest challenge for you in the business? <sighs> Fundraising has always been tough for us. So all investors will say that they're they're looking for the next new thing and da da da. And what I've learned is that everyone's got a boss. <laughs> so it's much easier for someone to fund the 16th SaaS platform if it ticks all the boxes, even if it fails. It's not, I mean, it looked good on it, paper. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's that. I learned that there is such thing as being a bit too early. And I think that we probably were at the same time. If we weren't, I don't think we would have discovered the opportunity. And it is a bit of a scale economics business. And it being in, in a lot of senses, being a first mover isn't necessarily the best, isn't necessarily an advantage. But in our business, I think it really is. There's talent, there's operations, there's lots of things um, that go into it that puts us at an advantage for being there's a lot of barriers to entry. Yeah. So being the first mover was a good thing. So fundraising, being a bit too early. And then lately, um, for me, it's been, I've just started to come to grips. I, I found leadership to be a challenge for a while. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so I was just going to say, so I find leadership to be a bit of a, a subjective, sort of kind of elusive concept in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does that really mean? So mm-hmm. I came from this corporate career where I led teams, big projects, big programs. I was responsible for millions of pounds worth of work. And I felt like I was quite good at it. <laughs> and and then when I took what I thought that was from a place like Accenture to a place like the Restory, which is a different business, a different stage, different types of people. Like I found that a lot of what I had, it's like it it, it all fell apart. <laughs> right. And in, in what way that you felt that it wasn't relevant or it wasn't, you, you couldn't apply it or the situation was so different and the people were so different. Like, what about it? Yeah. Well, I mean, all of it. Right. So, <laughs> so when you're the bag, like you're the one holding the bag at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really internalized that concept until I had the restory. So, you know, we would talk about that at Accenture, but 
it's not like the company's going to go under if, yeah. if I left or I got yeah. fired or if I did a okay job or a great job, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it wasn't going to make that big of a difference. So there's that. They were totally at Accenture. You are, you are brought in, you are trained, you are institutionalized in the Accenture way. There's a cultural aspect to it that everyone behaves pretty much in the same way. And it's very clear what's expected of you and things like that. So mm-hmm. getting people to think and behave in certain ways was a lot. I didn't realize like that was already done for you mm-hmm. at Accenture. And then they're just totally different people. So these are Accenture's people who went to school. They didn't always study business, but as I said, they if they hadn't, their careers were being directed in that way. They chose that path. They and then they get into this Accenture machine and and they get put on this. I, I don't want to say it's like a hamster wheel because it's not. It's a great company. It's just any big institution will have this. And here I am at the restaurant and I've got artists and, <laughs> and it's very hard to all of a sudden recreate the same type of yeah, culture I mean, like, and structure because yeah. that has been happening. There was for, no culture. There was yeah. no structure. There yeah. were totally different types of people. The age difference is quite a bit at Accenture sometimes too, but yeah, just everything was different. And what we were trying to do was totally different. It just wasn't, it just wasn't as, I had underestimated how well baked things were. Mm. At, at Accenture and I didn't I also didn't realize like how I heard Cyan talking about this in one of the interviews like that you have to really be you have to be really careful how you behave and everything from like the things you say to the energy you bring into the room and like how you respond to crisis and and things like that so well, as you said the buck ends with you yeah <laughs> so you're the one who is setting the scene and setting all of the expectations culture how you operate that's kind of down and to you and not just for your employees it's for your investors too Absolutely. so i have the same thing that that i have with my employees i have mm. obviously it's slightly different but it, it, when i have a board meeting it's the exact same thing i mm. i still need to be i suppose leading i need to be conscious of who i'm being in that room and what i'm putting out into that room and what I'm communicating and how I'm framing what I'm communicating. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's all been a really I mean, just thinking about anyone, anyone. Years. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, a huge learning curve to be able to deal with that. Yeah. And this is th- this is one of the things about the steps that you have to go through yeah. in places like Accenture, consulting firms or large, so, yeah. you know, very structured places which have had years, decades of figuring out what that path looks yeah. like for yeah. you. And then all of a sudden going somewhere where it's not a proven business yet. Yeah. Everything is brand new. The people coming in, not tried and tested and you're just trying everything for the first time sometimes and yeah there's a lot of uncertainties that comes with that. And no one had ever done this before because it didn't exist before so there's a challenge just doing something that's that's never been done. I mean no one's ever tried to scale a a service nonetheless I'd be an aftercare service Mm. which can be which has an enormous amount of kind of variability and complexity and and all of that so. Would you say that for a startup founder is that the hardest thing about having to deal with a lot of uncertainty or what would you say would be the hardest thing (laughs) i forget sometimes because now i've been at this for a couple of years but it's almost like with children like the the 
the challenges change at different stages. When your when your kids were infants, you're like, I can't wait till they can walk. You know, it's gonna be so life will be so much better when you can walk. Mm-hmm. And then you get there and you're like, Oh my god, I if I can't wait till they get they can I don't know, ride their bike. So you always look forward to the next stage and think life's gonna be better when I get that funding, when I get a CFO, when I get something. And it does, but then it's a whole different set of challenges as well. problems. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I guess that's life, isn't it? Where you, you can never really time. sit on your laurels because once you've arrived at one point yeah then all of a sudden you, you're seeing above the the parapet or whatever the yeah. expression is and you're saying oh okay so then this was a molehill now there is a huge mountain you're right, to- right. Doesn't it, like it's life in general mm-hmm. so i think we probably do this in in all aspects of life mm-hmm. whether jobs or anything you, when it's when i get there it's going to be better like that um, like, psychological yeah. <laughs> horizon of you know, that things will always be better in the future mm-hmm. and and that probably serves us really well in, in some ways and, and, I think and as an as an entrepreneur you need to have that ability to be excited about the future because you're trying to do something that isn't established it's not here yet so being able to have that vision and see that going forward is in my view is essential because someone has to imagine yeah "Hmm." absolutely there was a founder of a a, a shipping business or something which I imagine would be enormously challenging international shipping and he was being interviewed on a Goldman Sachs podcast I think it was and he had this great line. He said, you have to be sufficiently pissed off with the status quo <laughs> because yeah. it takes so much. It just takes so much. And you do come to this point where there are like lots of easier ways to make a living. Like <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Mm. So to to stick with it, even, even when it really is awful and there will be those times and you, you got to really believe mm. in the so what keeps in the, in the problem that you're trying to solve for the vision that you have. Mm. So what keeps you going? Like when you're having like your dark moments and your question, everyone has that, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But like when you're questioning things, like what keeps you motivated to keep going? How do you do so it? Every, this is one thing that's been very consistent throughout mm-hmm. the journey. When a client says to us, we call them clients. We, when a client says to us something like, I never thought this bag would like ever look like this again, mm-hmm. or it feels brand new, or I'm so excited I found you this. I've been looking for this for years or anything like that. Mm-hmm. If we deliver a good result and a great experience and they're happy with it so much so that they're willing to tell us about it, because that's, I mean, you can be happy with something and just not say anything but you got to be really happy to even say something Mm. and um to get people to dedicate their time to tell you to give you that that good that good feedback tell me about it in terms of getting yeah (laughs) i do i totally appreciate those people who take the time to give us bad feedback as well because Mm -hmm. i think that's equally um difficult to get out of people but if we've done a great job and i feel like they would miss us if we weren't there that's been consistent since day one that's the one thing that's been super consistent so satisfying and I, I I feel you when you say when someone gives you a good kind of like review. It's like getting reviews on a podcast. You know, it's like people really have to be motivated yeah. to actually say something positive and go out of their way yeah. Yeah. to give you that feedback. But also knowing that you are actually making an impact and yeah, that your idea that. That. and your business is is solving a problem that you saw in the world and actually it is being appreciated yeah now the question has left my mind what i was going to ask but um looking back now what has been one thing that you think if you had known it then have saved you a lot of hassle so going back to what i was saying before had i been more honest with myself that 
there was no way you were going to just do a mommy hustle and chill out <laughs> for a couple of years. I have never, ever done that. Mm. I would have approached this whole thing in a much more structured way. Mm. I felt, oh, it's like a mommy hustle. I'll spend a couple grand and I'll, it's my own. It's it was an account. It was my own money. So who was going to like, who was I accountable to? So I didn't, mm. so I didn't, I, it, had I been more honest with myself and a, I don't know if I would have done it at all. Mm. <laughs> so maybe it's a blessing, maybe it's a curse, but I would have approached it in a much more, in a much more structured way. Mm. I think the message that I hear a lot is if you know how hard it is to start it in the beginning or yeah. how many hurdles that you would have to go through you yeah. just wouldn't have started it at yeah, all because yeah. once you're aware of all the issues then you're like oh okay actually there's a <laughs> lot of ways you know, to make money exactly to make <laughs> and the one thing I hear from entrepreneurs is definitely not about it's no, not about the money because you really are trying to solve a problem and that's what keeps you going because if that's the case then it's well, there's a lot of I mean, ups and do downs want, you do you are I mean, there is the payoff that you're working toward as well, but you got to be pissed off with the status quo and you got to really want to solve a problem and mm. you got to be proud of what you're building too. The Restory had a predecessor company that might have been a much better business on paper than mm. the one than the Restory is today. Um, but I, I didn't like the brand I had started. I didn't like the way it was I just, it, it was a retail led concept. It, it probably wouldn't have survived through COVID. And I, I really underestimated at the time. And I'm glad that I figured it out quick, like how much you have to believe in it because you have to stand behind this thing mm. and you have to pull all your employees with you and you got to make them believe it and all your investors and, and the, the audience that you're trying to speak to. And if you don't believe it, like, there's no way you're going to get them to believe it. Mm -hmm. That business may have had some features that this business doesn't have that would have been more attractive to certain people, but I didn't like it. And so that had to go, you know, let somebody else do that. Mm. Talking about leadership, it's such a difficult thing to conceptualize or to, to label. I mean, what does leadership mean to you? So... I say it's difficult and it's and it, because there's so many different styles and lots of them work in different contexts and at different stages and things like that. So there's generally speaking, you have Pied Piper, you're leading from the front, people are following you. You have you have the people who their approach is more like I'm a coach, I'm listening, I'm in the middle, I'm with them. You know what I mean? Like it, it, I'm working come from within the middle. And then you have the ones who are like silently shepherding and moving things from the back generally speaking. I don't really know where I am. I don't think that I'm, I don't think that I'm naturally, I mean, people are obviously following me, but I don't view myself as like kind of the front leader. I don't really view myself as any of those things per se. But what I try to do is I try to create structure and context and I try to just provide direction and, and a few specific goals. And I try to make sure everyone's got the context and has the structural t support to the extent that I can provide it. So at times that's been rather difficult, particularly with regard to funding. And, and as, as long as I think that most things are figure outable and most people can do more than they think that they can do. So I do push people out of their comfort zone. For some people that works really well and they've really thanked me for it. For others, it's you never know when it's too much. But I try to create the environment and I try to push people and I give them a lot of leeway. And 
I think as long as I trust that you're smart and you're well-intentioned and you understand the objectives and you have a, a kind of a structured approach to how you're doing things and it's mostly working, I'm really happy to empower people who don't want to micromanage mm-hmm. um, at all. And I try not to fuss about the small thing. There's some analogy somebody gave me one time, like, like one of these puzzles, like you had to, if you had to put like a bunch of rocks into a jar and they were of varying sizes, how would you approach it? And it's, you have to put the big rocks in first, because mm-hmm. if you start with the small, you'll never get the big ones in. So mm-hmm. I try to focus on the big rocks and, and the small rocks are important to fill things up. But as long as those big ones get in there, those other ones will find space as well. So I try to take that approach with people. And then sometimes I realize they just need me to get out of the way and just listen. Sometimes they do need a bit more coaching. Sometimes they do need me to be at the front and doing things. So um, trying to understand where you have to be at any given time and for who and at, in what situations, that's my approach. Mm. And who's been... A leader that's inspired you and what qualities stood out for you from them? So I I have a view of people that nobody's going to encompass everything that you, no one's a perfect model. So I try to put together a mosaic of people. Mm. So I will take bits that I like that people do. So there's some people in my own team, I really like the way they approach things. And, and some of them are quite junior people. I just really like the energy they bring in the room that that'll I'm like, I should be more like that because I understand like what mm-hmm. they're and then other times it'll be like just these characters like Christine Lagarde, like I just watch her and I'm like, she's just she's chic and she's a boss. And so I just try to and I just try to piece together the bits that if I had to put in a mood board of people, like that's mm. what I, that's what I do, try to do in my mind. So just having this almost like a collage of yeah. qualities that kind of come up in day-to-day life from different people and putting that together. Yeah. I do I mean, that I guess, too, actually, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, obviously your biggest influence is going to be, is going to be your mom and probably the other women potentially. That, also the grandmothers, I've discovered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I do that, I do that as mm-hmm. well. And in fact, my, my, if I have a superpower, it's that, it, it's that I'm like, like ridiculous, tenacious. And I get that. I definitely get that from my mom. But there are other bits like my mom can't be all things to all people. So I got to I have to fill in the gaps. Actually, let's talk about you growing up. My mother had me very young and and obviously those young marriages don't tend to last. And my father had kind of addiction issues and things like that. So effectively, I was raised by a single mom. We moved around a lot in the beginning. So it was a quite kind of un, like chaotic first start. But the upside of that was that everybody was really young. So it was really fun in a way as well. And then things stabilized more. We moved back to New York and I was raised by grandparents like yourself. And, and eventually my mom kind of got her footing job-wise and got herself educated and then she and she eventually found somebody to to marry and she's been with him for gosh 35 years now Mm -hmm. and he adopted all three of us and then they had two more so big family yeah (laughs) so I'm the oldest of five Mm -hmm. I was listening to I was listening to Whitney's podcast and I think I was very much like that too I was it was a good town that we eventually settled in it had decent schools it was safe but it was it was Rochester New York and it was I was quite provincial and I always (laughs) my my mother's family is originally from Long Island so we had been going to New York like my whole pretty much my whole life and in my early days I grew up on Long Island beaches and things like that so New York was always this big shiny thing for me so Three days after I graduated high school, I left. Mm. <laughs> I went to New York. 
Amazing. And I was there until I came to London. And how did that come about? How did you move to London? So I met my then Swedish boyfriend in Mm -hmm. 2002. And he pursued me for a few months. And then as soon as I started to give in, I had started business school and he promptly moved to Bermuda, which was to work because this was when there were a lot of... To make things easy. Yeah, there were a lot of of hedge funds setting up in Bermuda at the Mm -hmm. time. It was a bit the cowboy days of hedge funds. But that was fine. I was like, great, a weekend boyfriend. Like, so we did that for a few years. There was a time when I was in Geneva studying and he was in Bermuda. So we did long distance for about four years. And eventually he, he, it got to the point where, you know, either you, I had in my my mind's eye that I would, I was like in a year, I'm going to ask him if he doesn't ask me first, I'm going to ask him to marry me. And if he says no, then we'll have to go our separate ways. And if not, he's going to have to leave Bermuda. There's no way I'm going to Bermuda. But he asked shortly after I had made that resolution to myself. Mm. And and then he got an opportunity to come to come here and start a company. And I was, as a junior banker, I was just getting, I had a lot of fun, but it was really hard work. It was like 18 hour days, six days a week. And yeah. So yeah. Nice. What a great story as well. I mean, it's like the, the move and, and the, like the excitement of it all. And it's a really exciting time to mm. be to just be getting married and moving country. And yeah, I just mm. felt like there was like, it was a really exciting time. And how did you end up in consulting? I mean, like I said, I had this finance background mm-hmm. and I just, I just showed them how I, I always had this fantasy about consulting and I just applied when I got to London. Was it what you expected it to be when you were there? Yeah, it was great. It was, it's really, if you're, if you're, as I said, if you're somebody, you can really pursue your intellectual interest through the type of work that you seek out. Accenture is kind of the, it's a bit like a market. Yeah, it's like the marketplace, but you have to go find your own teams and your own projects. It's entrepreneurial in that sense that you're part of a division, but you can go to lots of different industries and you can reinvent yourself over time. Mm. And there are lots of opportunities to to do that. Yeah. So it was really, and then you, off you go and start your own business thinking well it's just going to be something on the side just see how it goes I mean actually we talked about the differences between the two and I wonder what your advice would be to anyone who's listening who is in a consulting or in a big company considering starting their business what should they know about be aware of what advice would you give them Alex to pledge who was the founder of Hassel and now Resi and her and I worked together at Accenture and I remember I came back from maternity leave and she had taken a leave of absence to start the predecessor business to hassle. And I called her up and I was like, how exciting and starry eyed. And she said, it's way harder. Mm. And I remember going, there's no, no way. That's harder (laughs) than this. No way. And, um, and mostly she was right. (laughs) What was she wrong about? You don't have all the political pressure when you're on your own. You mm-hmm. have, you have other pressures, but you don't have you don't have politics, mm-hmm. particularly when it's small. Mm, that's for sure. But at Accenture, the one downside to a big company like that is very political. Mm. One thing I, I love talking about is failure and mistakes, mm. and the challenges that you have to come because we don't always know what's best. And in my opinion, mistakes are part of everyday life and should be embraced. I mean, what has been the biggest mistake for you and what happened and how at, did you? At the restory or any? Let's talk about the restory. Again, probably not being as structured in the beginning as I should have been. Definitely not looking after myself. 
I mean, it has real consequences for your business. So there was a time where I was so stressed out and I wasn't looking after myself and the effect that it had on the team, going back to like how you react to situations and what you put out there and all of that. I was putting out all like the wrong stuff. Mm. And I have a feeling that I was pretty close to ruining it all. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. But thankfully my... Um, At which point did you realize that was, or was there a, like a specific moment that you thought actually this, I'm not taking care of myself and this is having an impact. I went on, I went to the US on a family vacation while this was going on and I was getting up at three o'clock in the morning, just like in these absolute panic attacks. And, and I remember my husband had gone through something and I was like, why don't you just go see a doctor? What are you, why are you just suffering through this? And I just thought like, why am I suffering through this? <laughs> so I went and I, I got some help. Mm. Yeah. So that was a big, that was a mistake that I fortunately caught. And then there's just a myriad of mistakes. Kind of Actually, day, go, going day. back on that, because I'm not fascinated. I think that's the wrong word, but I think I feel like I've burnout or extreme pressure and how you deal with it and how to recognize the signs that you are not your best physically, mentally, and in business. Because my belief is that who, how well you take care of yourself is then reflected everywhere else in your business. And for sure, there's lots of pressure in the, in the expectations of others on yourself. But as your husband said, it's like, why are you suffering through this? But I think that's just a fascinating space. So what changes did you make as a result? Like you, when you went to, to see someone, what changes did you make? I got medicine. Mm -hmm. And I think that we don't talk about that enough. And then I started, which made me sleep better. So mm -hmm. I got more sleep. And then I, then I, cut down alcohol a lot and then exercising yes yeah that's a big thing isn't it yeah yeah I realized that when I actually probably sleep I mean it depends how much you're drinking but sleep and exercise are big things it's so simple isn't it mm -hmm. it's like these basic things that we take for granted but then just start to cut back on more and more but actually that's what makes the biggest impact on our well-being and how well we perform and yeah, just completely, yeah, under underused and very critical things to well-being. Yeah. Looking back now, what three pieces of advice would you give your younger self? So I like this question because I because I'm often giving advice to younger people, which mm. we, every older person likes to like pass down their wisdom <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and of course, they're not going to listen to but a small bit of it. But I always say, understand that people really like to help younger people. And they really value. I mean, you I'm sure you've had this experience yourself when somebody young comes to you, and they they're all starry eyed, and I'll just do anything. And I just everybody wants to help you. Don't be afraid to approach people. Definitely get out there, talk to people. I would say, work your tail off and don't be precious about what you're doing. If it's running coffee, go run coffee. Just get in there, get on the boat that you want to be on and do whatever. Sweep the floor, go get coffee. Get on the boat. <laughs> yeah, go fix the printer, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Just don't don't be precious about that stuff. Don't worry about titles and things like that. Just get try and get on your personal rocket ship and mm. take it from there. I would say understand how your company operates, how they make money, what's important, pay attention to the news, like what's going on. And then how does your boss and their boss, how do they fit into that? And then try to do, again, focus on the big rocks. How are you going to make their life 
better? How are you going to make them look better? How you focus on other people and you'll get lifted up as well. Mm. And then I always say to people, if you don't know what you want to do, choose, are you an academic? Are you an artist? Are you a business person? And if you're a business, I don't know these other areas, choose your general direction, but don't fuss too much about if you don't know what you want to be. Very few of us have grown up and be like, I've always wanted to be mm. an actor or a doctor or something. There's more people who just have you know, no clue than have a general direction. Like for me, I'm always like, I don't know what I want. I still say, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I know it's not a lawyer. At least you can take that off the, you know, cross that off your list. The process of elimination. So Mm. at least for, as far as business people, I always say, if you're a business person, get into, and that includes like marketing. So it's not to say that it's not, there aren't creative elements in there as well, but just go to a startup Or go to a big company, like a big traditional blue chip company, Mm -hmm. and just stay there for two or three years at least and just learn everything you can and work your butt off. And then if if that's not the place you want to stay, switch it around, go do the other thing. Mm -hmm. Because that balance of experience of having that the structured corporate environment and the all hands on deck startup environment, I think that balance is really good. Mm -hmm. And I would also, last thing I would say is like you branding on your CV does does matter. So you don't need every job to be at Goldman Sachs and the, the, you know what I mean? But you know, if you're at Goldman Sachs for two or three years, that'll like, that's enough branding. It does for open home. doors. Yeah, it does. It really does. Yeah. It's not going to, once you're there, you got to do the work, but it does help. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the points that you made earlier about being a young person, starry eyed, asking for advice. I've been thinking about that lately because I don't see myself as young anymore. Like I don't see myself as old, but you know, obviously not as young as I was when I, for example, I started my business, which was nine years ago. And I remember just feeling very shy about asking for things. But when I did, it was incredible how many people were open. But likewise, you get to a certain stage in your business where you might be You're stuck. You're probably viewed like younger than you think you are as well. <laughs> probably. Every 28-year-old feels like they're getting old. And yeah, every 30... I felt 38 year old is like, oh, that's yes, I'll help you. (laughs) Yeah, no. So, so being young at the time, I was like, you can forgive yourself when you don't know certain things. But what I realized is that even now, I can still do the same things asking for advice. So, actually, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter. Yeah. what age you are yeah there are always people there's always going to be people older and more experienced than you yeah. and that idea of asking for help yeah. or being strategic about who you go to yeah there are people who are so open and want to to do that yeah and it doesn't matter what the age yeah. is yeah it's a, it's a great point yeah yeah what seems impossible to you now but if it were to happen, would change the course of your life and your business i, I thought about this question I, I can't really think of anything that's impossible at, at, at this point. I mean, obviously our, our aim is to have a liquidity event at some point and that will be great. And I don't know exactly how that happens, but I know what scale I need to build the business up to for that to start to be attractive to some people. And, but it just doesn't feel like an impossibility anymore. When we were, when it was me and, and my co-founder Thais in my house, <laughs> that even getting to where we are now was, that just seemed like a million miles away. And it's so important to take that yeah. to moment to look back and actually think this is where we started and this is where we are now, because I think it's all too often we can be so focused on what's next, next, yeah. that actually not taking not celebrating the wins and just seeing how far you've come is can be we just don't do that enough yeah 
Yeah. What What do you feel most proud? I mean, every parent will say, that, you know, <laughs> their kids and their family, and I do that. Sometimes when I have a conversation like this, I do I do remember that I was this frustrated little Rochester girl, and now I'm like I've lived this um, you know this interesting life. I've seen a lot of things, obviously not everything, but a lot more things than I would have imagined I would have seen as that girl living in London, speaking to people like yourself, and then the restory, just you know, just seeing something that was like not a fully baked vision in your mind, like take shape and form and start to almost take on a little bit of a personality of its own, Mm. you know, just start to become its own, its its own entity and mature. Sometimes when we're talking about starting a business and you're like, oh, it was just, just do this as a side thing. But actually you you don't really know what the future holds. And sometimes the biggest barrier is just starting in the first place. And the easier you can make it, the more you can actually, you know, get something off the ground because you can have the most amazing plans and think about it, but never actually take that step. Yeah. Um, of action, of actually putting it into yeah, action is everything. You have to take the you have to take the step and the next one and the next one. And it gets easier. It may seem daunting. Either you start out like you're forcing yourself through something that's really daunting and that's taking everything you can to just take that first step. Mm. And other times you're naively stumbling into it like I did. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, now I've got a tiger by the tail and I gotta make sure I don't get bit. But you just need to keep you need to keep moving forward. Not I have, a, I have a friend who oh. says, who who is a serial entrepreneur. He's actually one of my investors now. And he says he recently can't ran into a, a tough bit. Even with all of his experience, he ran into a tough bit. He said, I told my wife, like, he's he can't sit down. He like he won't sit down. All he's he only sits down to sleep. He was working standing up. He absolutely would not sit down because because <laughs> he needed that to like just get him through this really uh, this really rough time. It was around the time that COVID struck, and uh, yeah. So yeah, action I think is just everything. Yeah. I mean, you can have the best plans, best ideas, but then you have to actually make them a reality and all of this never going to look like how you put them down on paper (laughs) exactly whatever the plans are then when you're actually testing them in real life and all of these other factors that you didn't anticipate Mm -hmm. and yeah and just like figuring it out and tinkering and and making them work people into it and they they bring their thing to it and it could just Mm -hmm. yeah just evolves exactly well i'm so excited about your plans at the restory and looking forward to you know seeing more of you and what you're doing and obviously entering clothing as well and i've got my chanel wallet that's going to be going in (laughs) for repair very very soon and where can we find you what's the best way to reach out to you or so you can book online from anywhere in the world. You can also book online at farfetch.com and Harrods has our online widget as well. And then you can go into any Harrods, Harvey Nichols, Selfridges or Browns in the country. Mm. And we will be launching our first mono brown partner, Manola Blahnik, this month. So that's going to look look for that. There's going to be a lot of celebration around that. We're also launching a second mono brand in the fourth quarter and our first international retailer as well. Amazing. Yeah. No, super exciting and such a pleasure to meet you. And thank you you so much for coming on to the show. And yeah. What a pleasure. And congratulations <laughs> on all the success you've had with your show. Thank you so much for joining us here on Anatomy of a Leader podcast. I hope our guests' leadership journeys resonate with you and make you feel like you too can take on the world. If you'd like to be mentioned here on the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and leave a review, and I will pick the best one to mention in our next episode. 
tell a friend, share on social media. I'll make sure to support you there also. And let me know what inspired you, what changes you've made, and how you too succeeded against all odds. You can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn with the handle MariaHVO, or just search for my very long surname. And if you're hiring leaders to take your business to the next level, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Again, that very long surname, or Maria HVO. Thank you again for being here on Anatomy of a Leader. Bye for now.